Please turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, picking up where we left off last time in verse 7 and reading through verse 12. You remember as we come to this portion of the text that Paul has been laying out his argument to the churches he established in the region of Galatia, modern-day Asia Minor, Turkey. These are churches that have come under the influence of false teachers, Judaizers, saying that our justification is by faith, sure, but also by works too, faith and works, and not by faith alone. And he's been arguing for justification by faith alone all through up to this point, and he's been pressing them even to a decision. Are you Isaac or are you Ishmael? Are you over the way of circumcision and according to the law, or are you by the gospel of by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone? So come to chapter 5 and verse 7. It's as if turn, Paul turns to lament. And I believe to imply much about what happened in Galatia. So we pick up there in Galatians 5 and verse 7. Paul says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. When the company turns in negative profits for the quarter, the CEO has to answer some questions. When the school uh, isn't hitting its numbers for what the students are supposed to be able to be scoring and all the standardized tests, the superintendent or the principal or the headmaster needs to give some answers to what's, why things are failing. If the football team is not performing on the field as it's supposed to, if it's losing games they're supposed to win, there are things to be said at the post-game press conference to lament and dissect what's gone on. It's the same in the churches. Paul, who had established this church himself, had got it going. It had started running, he says in verse 7, and then something happened. Paul is lamenting here, and in his lament, his Holy Spirit-inspired lament, I think he gives us some clues to how he's thinking about what happened to the various churches in this region. And so we'll, we'll enumerate those as we go along, hopefully four principles as we come through together, of what we see implied by Paul in his lament. Remembering all the while that this is simply within not even a whole generation, but even a half generation from when he started the church himself on the solid ground of uh, the gospel itself, that it had veered off course. It had stopped running well. And the first thing we see, I think, even listed here in verse 7, 
is poor leadership. Poor leadership. In verse 7, he says, you were running well. Who hindered you? That is, the question is, it's a who and not a what. There is not some cultural, industrial, intellectual, economic force behind what happened. It's not a rising middle class or a technological innovation that gives an explanation to their situation. It's a who. There is a culprit. There's someone responsible. Someone was supposed to keep them running well, and someone hindered them. And Paul has alluded before in this letter to the false teachers, the Judaizers, those preaching a different gospel of justification by faith and works, and not by justification by faith alone. But I don't think that's all Paul has in mind here. He's, after all, not asking an actual question. He's not expecting a response from his people. He knows the false teachers. It's an exasperated lament, implying there's someone responsible for the cross-country team of the church to run how he taught them, to keep on running well as they were when he left. It wasn't as if after he planted the church, he left them without leadership, without pastors and teachers and elders. No, Acts chapter 14 and verse 23, on his first missionary journey, Luke points out, as he went to every church and he left, he established elders. He had expectations the church would continue to run well because he had them under the guidance of or under the oversight of overseers, presbyteroi elders. There was leadership in charge who were responsible for making sure the church continued on the, on the right track. From 1 Peter 3, Titus 1, Paul writes letters to Pastor Timothy and Pastor Titus explaining the, the kinds of people that were supposed to make up leadership, the men and what they were like. They were to be spiritual men, godly men, above reproach morally with well-ordered families, their families as a, as a testing ground of their leadership. So that in verse 7, when he is lamenting in exasperation, he knows and we knows the immediate answer to the question of who hindered them. Of course, it was the false teachers, but on a deeper level slightly, who was responsible for making sure that false teachers didn't come into the church? We can assume that what Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, in his famous exhortation, he had said something similar to the Galatian elders. In Acts 20, Luke records for us Paul's weighty exhortation. He says to the Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. From among, among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Those tasked with being under shepherds, protecting the flock of God under the good shepherd, are meant to keep the wolves out, the false teachers. He who hindered them was a wolf. It was the elder's job to keep the wolves out. Now, of course, we, we live in a, a feminized and feminist age and strong 
male leadership is, is rather countercultural. I, I, I don't know if it's only Abby and I, but it seems like the, the TV programs we watch run the same commercials over and over again, and there's this classic Subaru commercial right now where it's uh, the couple, and they're out in their desert, and uh, they're doing cliff diving, and, and um, they're rappelling down into caverns, and every time it's, it's the guy who's not quite sure, is this safe? And the girl's like, oh yeah, we got this. And she jumps, and he's like, oh, I'll go too. And then and they're rappelling, and she's down there waiting for him. He's like, is this safe? And he's coming down, and, and of course, they get in the Subaru out back, and they drive off, and uh, they come to this cow in the road, and he says, is that a buffalo? And the woman says, it's a cow, duh, you know, the butt of all the jokes is how silly and effeminate this man is and how strong, really, the women are. And you know all this, of course. But when we, Sunday by Sunday, have the elders come forward, a bunch of old, gray-haired, white guys, guys primarily, um, there's something countercultural that happens in a, a church that unapologetically follows its godly men who fit this pattern of life. The elders of the church are meant to do the manly task of protecting the flock, and the Galatian elders should have been vigilant, serious, and ready, but it seems that they weren't. No doubt the false teachers hindered them in verse 7, but who should have stopped the false teachers but the elders, the leadership of the church? So Paul in his lamentation implies, I think first here we see poor leadership and what happened among the churches of Galatia, and secondly, as an expression of their poor leadership, I think we can deduce Poor leadership shown by poor teaching. Poor teaching, secondly. Perhaps this is too obvious, but it's there in verse 7. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? So what does running mean? Running means obeying the truth. You're doing the thing. As the Bible says, as it's been explained to you, well, how do they know the truth which they are to obey? Someone has to teach them. He explains further in verse 8. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. This is the persuasion or the way of thinking of the false teachers, that is justification by faith and works. It's not from him who calls you. It is not from God, Paul says. It's not from Christ. It's not from the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not from above. It's from below. As Paul has been saying, this persuasion, this other teaching is cursed. It's slavish. It has no inheritance with the children of promise by faith in the gospel. So the question must be asked, why didn't they see it? Why didn't they catch it? How could the persuasion of Satan overtake the gospel of God in the church? Not in the culture at large. In the church. How could this happen? Well, they say if you want to be able to tell the counterfeit... You have to study the genuine article. I was told as a young man that if you look for the little spider in the right hand of the, this is your right hand and my left hand, uh, of the $1 bill, there's a little spider that shows you the authenticity of the $1 bill, or perhaps it's the, you know, the colorful watermark in the $20 bill. But whatever had happened, something had happened to the teaching of the churches of Galatia so that the people must not have been well taught enough to tell the facsimile, or this subtle deception from the genuine article. They must not have done as Paul had instructed Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.16, to keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Paul says, persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. 
that is in the most basic and practical ways, this is why we are Presbyterian. We take our teaching seriously. Not just anyone can come have a word in the church to share. Not just anyone uh, can come and share. No, there are high standards, a life set apart. There are years of preparation in academia and otherwise to prepare a man to rightly handle the word of truth. The elders must vet as carefully as possible those who would teach, those who would be trusted to feed God's sheep, to lead them in the truth that is to be obeyed. And Paul is lamenting that not only did the churches in Galatia suffer from poor leadership, but poor leadership that allowed poor teaching. Thus uh, is further an explanation of why we do what we do around here. This church does not gather, hardly, that I can hardly even think of, a, of an example, where there's not some teaching going on, whether it's Sunday school or Sunday morning or Sunday evening, or whether it's the men's prayer breakfast or the Tuesday women's Bible study or the Tuesday primes Bible study, or it's the Wednesday noon service where there's preaching, or there is the college Bible study on Tuesday or Wednesday night, or it's the Thursday night Bible study, or it's any of the women's circles, or whatever we're doing, the Word of God is being taught. Why? Romans 10, faith comes by hearing. Jesus says, the truth shall set you free. And Paul here, so that you might know the truth obey the truth, keep running well, not fall under the persuasion of Satan even within the church. That persuasion is not from him who called you. So we might say, not only does Paul insinuate poor leadership, but also demonstrated poor leadership and poor teaching in the church that could not tell the persuasion was not from him, that had lost the truth to which they were supposed to obey. And thirdly, not only poor leadership and poor teaching, but further poor discipline. Look at verses 9 and 10 with me. Verse 9, Paul says, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Now, of course, Paul is speaking to numerous churches, and of course, every individual church might have had its own story of how this happened there. And so he's, he's speaking perhaps with a broad brush. But he can say this, that there ought to be a penalty for the guys, for the person who did this. Now, the question arises, well, what penalty is Paul referring to? And I think here there is, on the surface, an obvious penalty. There is a penalty. Jesus himself teaches us, Matthew 18, 6. Jesus says, you who would lead one of these little ones of mine to stumble, it's better to have a millstone hung around your neck and to be thrown into the sea. Or James explains in James 3.1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So that we, we know there is a special judgment, a special strictness from God Almighty, a special judgment upon those who teach and preach. And yet Paul is speaking, I think, to the churches, that is in a church context here, and we know from the rest of his teaching, the rest of the Bible teaching, that there is a penalty, a discipline that can be applied in the churches and should have been applied in the churches, even to the leaven, we might say. Verse 10 says, Paul has confidence you will take no other view. That there is a view that is the standard, that is orthodoxy. 
And that there is a penalty for the one who is troubling you from that standard, from that view, from that orthodoxy. For some of us, no doubt, this is a concept long lost on the church, this idea of church discipline. But the New Testament is not unclear in its instruction. Matthew 18, Jesus gives the process for confronting a brother in unrepentant sin. You go to him once, and you bring a brother with you to confront him again, but eventually if he doesn't hear you or listen to you, you tell it to the church. And after telling to the whole church, he still doesn't listen. You treat him as a tax collector or sinner, that is, as one outside the people of God. Or we could look to 1 Corinthians 5, 5, Paul instructing the Corinthian church how to deal with the public, unrepentant sinner, to be, as it says, handed over to Satan, put outside the church. So the New Testament gives us clear expectations that we know who a member is, who is on the outside, and who is not. Uh, who, who is on the inside, who is on the outside. We have membership roles and lists. We have our leadership outlined and elders and deacons. We are meant to kept the, keep the church of Christ pure. Of course, not with heavy-handed leadership lording it over one another, but with patient, humble clarity on orthodoxy, right belief, and orthopraxy, right practice. So that in verse 9, it makes sense that Paul is calling them to look to the leaven to deal with them. He says, verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Got to get the leaven out of the lump. You got to get the cancer out of the body. Leaven will spread to the whole of the dough. Cancer will destroy the whole of the body. It must be dealt with. It should have been dealt with. But how does this actually work practically. If you have a pastor or teacher and you're not sure what you're hearing from him is really what the Bible says, what ought you to do? Well, first, we might follow Matthew 18. You might to go to him and ask for clarity. Ask him to clear up what he's saying. And if he's uh, still not bringing any clarity, perhaps, and you're still wondering, you might bring a, a brother or even an elder who could help bring clarity to the situation. If there's still not clarity, you might raise it to the session to deliberate and to discuss and to press charges, perhaps. And if not to the session, then did I say presbytery last time? I meant session and then presbytery. Did I say, did I say it right? Session, and then if not to the session, to the presbytery, and if not to the presbytery, the general assembly. There is a, a stage of courts with which to deal with false teaching, with the leaven that must be outed from the church. Paul here in the wider New Testament makes clear that there need be a penalty for the wolves that feed upon the Lord's sheep. There need be a penalty for those who would lead Christ's little ones away with false teaching. Makes me want to ask, why didn't the Galatian elders get rid of the leaven? Why didn't they head off the false teachers? We aren't told why, but I, I, I feel free to speculate. I feel free to imagine that's many of the same reasons that church discipline is difficult today. Perhaps the false teaching is subtle. Perhaps the elders themselves were naive. Perhaps as often as I assume uh, that they were perhaps just too nice. They were not wanting the conflict. Nobody likes a conflict in church. People don't like to be called fundamentalist. One of the questions of history that irritates me that we talk about regularly these days is how so many of the congregations we're surrounded by that preached the gospel for generations, that had churches that were full, that built tall, beautiful buildings, 
that stood for the gospel and the purity of Christ and the glory of his name fly pride flags outside with no one on the inside. How does that happen? How does the whole country, it seems, all the mainland denominations skew? Especially in denominations like the old Presbyterian mainline, who year after year passed motion after motion at the General Assembly, making clear that they did believe the fundamentals of the faith, even having full heresy trials against men like Charles Briggs, who denied the inerrancy of the Bible, who kicked him and others out of the church, but with with even a half generation from that, had lost the whole generation, the whole of the mainline, even by the late 1920s and 30s, had taken a specific tack. No doubt some elders lost their nerve. No doubt some were naive. No doubt some didn't want to be thought of as fundamentalist or doctrinaire. Because this is the thing about good leadership in a church. It's passionate about the truth. It must be that. And if we're deducing implications of Paul's lament here, which I think is valid to do, it's a rather um, scary thing to do on a text about the the seriousness of the truth, but I think these are, are there, I would argue for them further. We might say that clearly Paul is calling out their poor leadership, manifested in their poor teaching and poor discipline, and finally we might point to their poor passion in, clear, in, in contrast to Paul's burning passion here in verses 11 and 12. Fourth point, their poor passion it's needed for good leadership. You might say verses 11 and 12 are still warm to the touch from when Paul wrote them. In verse 11, he's defending himself from any misunderstanding about what has happened with Timothy. There's charges that, but if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? No doubt some of the Judaizers said, look, Paul preaches circumcision. Don't you know he had Timothy circumcised? Which, of course, is a twisting of the truth, as false teachers do. Acts 16, Paul clearly has Timothy circumcised for contextualization reasons. Remember, Timothy had a Greek father and a, uh, a Jewish mother. He would have had an awkward relationship with the synagogues that Timothy and Paul were trying to go into to, to reach. He was not circumcised, so simple matter of contextualization. He's circumcised. But Paul, making clear, as he did in verse 6 before our text, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Then he points to the fact of his own persecution. He says in verse 11, you know, why am I still being persecuted if I say that kind of thing? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. What is the offense of of the cross. What is the offense of the cross? The offense is that neither, as Paul just said, circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Neither how good nor how bad, nor how moral or immoral, nor how, how much money you've given or how much money you didn't give. No matter how religious you've been or irreligious, no matter your past, checkered or pure, anything counts in this lane of justification by faith alone. Jesus' parable of the workers in the field. It doesn't matter if you've been working all day from morning to night. You got paid the same in the end as the guy that got there 15 minutes before closing time. That's offensive. People who put in more work and more effort expect more reward. The offense of the cross is that we're all equally dead. And God comes in grace and all equally rises us to him and we're all debtors to mercy alone. 
cross of Christ, which allows the grace of God to flow, makes the point itself. Jesus on the cross says to the thief on the cross next to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Someone who's been a thief enough to get themselves crucified in Rome will be at the feet of Christ just as Simeon and Anna, who had waited their whole lives for the birth of the Messiah. Billy Graham and Jeffrey Dahmer, who was apparently converted in prison before he died, will both be in heaven forever. That's offensive. And Paul's passion spills over when discussing the offense of the cross, and then only more so as he contemplates, again, what all this means. Verse 12, I wish those who settle, uh, will unsettle you would emasculate themselves. He wishes the circumcision party would go ahead and become a castration party. I think the great English commentator John Stott explains things well when he says this. He says, His sentiment sounds to our ears both coarse and malicious. We may be quite sure, however, that it was due neither to an intemperate spirit nor to a thirst for revenge, but to his deep love for the people of God and the gospel of God. I venture to say that if we were as concerned for God's church and God's word as Paul was, we too would wish the false teachers might cease from the land. Indeed, this is the kind of passion that men follow. It's the kind of passion that is an essential part of good leadership. Good leadership ensures the people are running well, that nothing hinders them. Good church leadership is deeply in tuned with the teaching that is happening in the church. All the teachers and pastors have been tested, trained, approved. Good leadership is not afraid to use church discipline no matter what the goats might call the sheep. And good leadership is a flood with a passion for the offense of the cross, for the grace of the gospel, for the glory of Christ's name and the purity of his church. I'm working on my third biography this year of, uh, of Woodrow Wilson. Fascinating character in so many ways. Uh, he's, uh, he was married here to Mr. Axon, whose memorial is here, his granddaughter. Wilson, um, of course, is in many ways a son of the South. His own father was pastor of First Pres Augusta during the Civil War. He was raised in the Southern Presbyterian Mance. Um, memorized the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Had all three of his own daughters mem- memorize the whole of the Shorter Catechism. He was a strict Sabbatarian all his life. Famously, when Wilson is teaching at Princeton, he was elected an elder, a ruling elder of Second Presbyterian Church in Princeton. His father remarked that he'd rather Wilson be a ruling elder in the Presbyterian Church than President of the United States. And of course, he goes on to be President of the United States. The tragedy of the story of Wilson is I think he embodies well the exact kind of elder that allowed the church, the beginning of the 20th century, to lose its way in America. At some point, he himself is liberalized, and I'm not sure he was ever even aware of it. At one point, he reads a book about the, a critical view of the Scriptures and how they are not uh, inerrant or infallible, and he, he was sold hook, line, and sinker. He didn't, didn't seem to have the patience or to be willing to do the hard work to sort through the issues at stake, even though he's very good friends with the defenders of inerrancy and infallibility at the time that all these things are written. He's at Princeton with B.B. Warfield and Charles Hodge, or just Charles Hodge before him, B.B. Warfield and, and Francis Landy Patton, dear friends, and even J. Gresham Machen. Machen would have 
known Wilson personally, even had dined at his house regularly, but he didn't seem to question it. All his life, he still seemed very pious, very serious about righteousness, but always in a seemingly socially acceptable kind of way. It's not clear he was ever deep-thinking enough to realize, as Barry Hankins, his biographer in the Oxford series, says, that he couldn't have Christian spirituality without Christian theology. Of course, that's what modern liberalism had become, had become the form without the substance This way, I do think Wilson represents well the exact kind of elder that the old main line of Presbyterianism fall into modernism and liberalism that led to its death. He had no patience for sorting through the subtlety of false teaching. He was assumed to be orthodox based mostly on his association, his family associations. But he himself had none of the burning passion and clarity about the gospel of God, the need of sinners, and the grace of Christ that every elder true elder in the church ought to have. And he, he sets in fascinating contrast with the other great Southern Presbyterian who I've been reading about, J. Gresham Machen, one of our heroes, who his wife was raised in Macon, the Gresham family just up the road here. Machen, who famously reads that, writes that book, Christianity and Liberalism, and who Hankins says, by the end of his life, Wilson came to embody exactly what Machen detested, Machen being one who is vociferous for the truth in the most Pauline kind of way, and eventually gets himself kicked out of the mainline Presbyterian church, gets himself kicked out of Princeton Seminary, and leads a movement of what we are in the direct flow of, back to the Scriptures, back to a, a people running well, unhindered, obeying the truth in clarity. Paul watched apostasy begin not even one generation removed from his founding the church. The job of our leadership, the job of every Christian is to be vigilant for the truth, to see all that we love and enjoy together lost. It'd be a terrible nightmare. It's a terrible reality all around us in America today. Let us stay vigilant for the truth. We pray together. Our Father in heaven, I pray that there would be no question among us about the truth of the gospel, its centrality, the inerrancy and infallibility, inspiration of your holy word as we have it in the Bible, that you would let our church neither turn to the right nor to the left, but stay on the path of righteousness all the days. We thank you, Father, for bringing us this far and pray that you will continue us until you return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.